song. There was one time he did that song at the jail and they asked him to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that, it's that good. Uh, anyhow. Well, good morning to y'all. And uh, we're going to continue on in our study of uh, Genesis chapter 3, actually. We're going to read the uh, final five verses here again. So uh, Genesis chapter 3, beginning of verse 20. And when you find that, would you please stand for reading God's Word? Okay, Genesis chapter 3, beginning of verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, again, Lord, we are grateful to be here today. Lord, help us to understand that you are here with us, in us, among us, to acknowledge your presence, to look to you, uh, to look to you not only this hour, but uh, every, every moment of every day of life. And Lord, we do, as we come to your word, we do need for you to grant understanding. We are so easily distracted and we um, are so prone to take things and distort them. But Father, we, we pray. Enable us to be attentive. Open our hearts to your truth. Grant to us understanding that we may make right application. And we pray, empower us to live it to your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Y'all bear with me one moment here. I'm, I'm, I'm noticing I've got a, a really weak battery here. So uh, let me change this out real quick. It only takes a second. All right. Apologize for that. Don't get far without power when you're using a, uh, a wireless mic or a wired one for that matter. Uh, so that's just a good sermon illustration there. We need power. <laughs> If we're going to do what God calls us to do, not, not a 9-volt battery, but we need the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit empowering us. And, and speaking of that, um, let me do something a little unusual here because I had some um, application from last week. And so I'm just going to read, read this to you, what I had written down or, or uh, typed actually. But um, I'm just going to read it to you. But I wanted to do this because remember last week um, we were talking about the consequences of the fall and we, we uh, focused in on, um, and this will help us with context for today too, because just kind of help us remember where we were. <clears throat> but we, uh, we spent quite a bit of time on uh, how the relationship uh, between man and woman was destroyed or, or severely uh, injured, I guess we could say. Um, and so we spent quite a bit of time on, on verse um, 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. And, and today, by the way, today we'll be looking a little bit more at how, uh, because of the fall, the relationship 
between man and God is is um, destroyed. So so last week was you know horizontally you know the effects of the fall, consequences of the fall horizontally, man to man, or uh, you know by that I mean fellow human beings, um, specifically man and woman, or even you can even uh, be a little more specific in application with that and say man and wife. You know there's problems between husbands and wives because of the fall. So, and this week it'll be more vertical. We're talking about our relationship to God. So here's some application for for last week. Okay, as far as um, as far as um, the consequences of the fall, specifically what I have in mind here, um, too, is verse 16. Look at the latter part of the verse. This is God speaking to the woman. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And I spent quite a bit of time explaining that last week. Probably why I didn't ever get to the uh, application I'm going to give you now. But um, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The idea there is a struggle for power, basically. Um, God has created uh, man as... Uh, we've been using the term head or headship. There, there is, uh, the Bible teaches, male headship. Uh, in the family, all right? So basically what he's saying here to Eve is your desire shall be for your husband, meaning that you will try to overtake him. And, and, and these are consequences that not only affected Eve, but every woman and man um, since then. Your desire shall be for your husband, meaning you shall try to overtake him. And then he says, and he shall rule over you. And the idea there is not just... As head, you know, like in a, in a good way, the leader, but the idea there is uh, in a bad way. In other words, he will abuse his headship. You will try to overtake him, and he will try to suppress you. It's a bad thing. Both things are bad things, you know, that are, that are consequences of the fall. So, um, but, but we're going to see, and you know, we'll, we'll get to talk more about this today as well, but the reversal of those things in Christ, those bad things. So we don't want to think, oh, well, there's just you know, hope. You know, we're on this side of the fall, and this is just the way it is. You know, there's this power struggle. There's no hope. No, there is hope. The effects of the fall are reversed through the reconciling work of Jesus. And when I'm talking about his work, I'm talking about his life, death, and resurrection, okay? What he did in his atoning work. The effects of the fall are reversed in the reconciling work of Jesus. All opposition to God is put under his feet. Think about the serpent here and the, and the God cursing the serpent. Um, all opposition to God is put under the feet of Jesus, uh, who is, by the way, the serpent crusher, right? Um, that's verse 15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, that is the seed of the serpent, and her offspring, in other words, all mankind. He shall bruise your head, that is, the serpent shall bruise the head of, of uh, I'm sorry, the man, the seed of the man, or seed of the woman, shall bruise the serpent's head, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, that is, the serpent shall bruise the heel of men. And the ultimate fulfillment of that, of course, is played out between Satan and Jesus. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Satan bruises, as it were, I mean, this is a picture, a prophetic picture. Satan bruises, as it were, the heel of Jesus by having him murdered, all right, crucified. 
But all of that is part of God's plan, right? And Satan doesn't realize that he's actually helping along his own undoing. And so, what does Jesus do? In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he crushes the head of the serpent. So ultimately, that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. He shall bruise your head. That is, Jesus shall um, crush Satan, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. Satan gets a, uh, a temporary, what seems to be a victory. It turns out not to be, but at least temporarily, it seemed to be a victory when Jesus is murdered and put in the grave. He bruises the heel of the seed of the woman, and that seed is Jesus. All right, so uh, th- this involves... Um, a progression. Now, I'm talking about God putting all of his opposition under the feet of Jesus involves a progression. And the last or final enemy to be put under his feet is death. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And verse 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26. So the last enemy to be put under his feet is death. Yet even now, aspects of Jesus' victory are to be realized by all who trust him. At present, because of the redeeming work of Jesus, the relationship between man and woman has changed, and Christians should be living the new reality. The newest new reality. I mean, what, what was the new reality at the fall was the struggle between man and woman. God created man as head. He created woman as helper. Then they sinned. And because of sin, this power struggle begins that we see in verse 16. That was the new reality. They had to live now because of their sin. That we all had to live because of their sin and because of our sin. But now there's a new new reality in Christ. That is for Christians. If you're in Christ, the work of, of, of Satan and the, and the effects of the fall are being undone, being reversed. So for the Christians, uh, Christian men, Christian women, we don't have to live this power struggle. We have returned to the original pre-fall roles with man as head and woman as helper, the two living together in Christ-centered, God-glorifying harmony in the presence of the Lord. Remember, those are the things that, that um, they lost at the fall. They, they lost the harmony between themselves and creation, between themselves, period, man and woman, and the harmony between themselves and God. All was lost at the fall. But in Christ, these things are restored. And also, um, you know, they're, we're going to see today, they're, they're banished from the presence of the Lord. In Christ, that is regained. So, the struggle of 316 is ended. In Christ, women should submit to the headship of their husbands and men should love their wives, caring for them with Christ-like leadership marked by humility and gentleness. Now, that's some of my own description there, but it's biblical. And you can read it in Ephesians 5 where Paul spells it out uh, uh, pretty much um, with that kind of terminology. All right, so here's just a few little words for application. A word, first of all, to single Christians. Because you might be thinking, uh, what has this got to do with me? We're talking about husband and wife here. Well, there are still roles, um, even in, um, you know, just just for men and women in general, uh, which I'm not going to get into all that, but just just want to mention this about that. 
the distorted relationship between men and women is corrected in Jesus. This applies not only to married couples, but also to men and women in general, though it works out differently. So, for example, you know, uh, you, you, you heard me mention the, uh, the word submission a moment ago. Women should be submitted to their husband. Wives should be submitted to their husband. But, you, you know, you're not, that submissive role doesn't exist between um, you and another man. Unless you're just thinking of it in terms of like allowing him to open the door for for you or something to that that effect, where you're kind of deferring to his leadership. But but um, you 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 help and follow or led by your husband in a way that it's just not the case with any other other man. So so that's in the context of marriage primarily. It works out a lot differently in other relationships. So an application, um, regardless of society's views regarding male and female roles, Christians are to act in accordance with our Christian identity. Our attitude and conduct toward members of the opposite sex must be godly, whether they are believers or unbelievers. So you see what I'm saying? I mean, we don't project anything onto them. This doesn't mean that we impose some role upon them. Um, but it does mean that we must fulfill our own role. So we just, we just conduct ourselves in a godly way, and that applies to uh, married couples. It applies to singles. We, we deal with the opposite sex um, according to the way we're taught to in Scripture. You know, we've got certain, um, certain conduct that is considered godly. Secondly, a word to Christian married couples. Believing spouses should no longer live out the power struggle that resulted from the fall. Now, don't get too discouraged here because, you know, uh, this, that is where we should be. But as I said, all of this is a work in progress and uh, we, we are being sanctified we, in all things. You know, this, other things as well. We are learning to come in line with God's Word, you know, to live out God's Word. So if you're thinking, boy, my husband and I are, or my wife and I are not doing a very good job of this, well, we need to get there. It needs to be a goal. But, but don't get discouraged, you know, because we're not there. There's a process going on, a learning process. So um, the power struggle should, should not be happening between Christian husbands and wives. Again, I mentioned Ephesians earlier. Here's Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Colossians 3.19. By the way, also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Ephesians 5 and, and 6, 6.1 would be another place to go. And then husbands, Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So in Ephesians 5, he says, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. In Colossians 3.19, he says, Do not be harsh with them. That's, that's what's happening in Genesis 3.16. He shall rule over you. He's describing harshness. But now we're in Christ. And Paul is saying, Don't be harsh with your wives. Lastly, um, on this, a word to Christians who are married to unbelievers. Just some simple application here. Your responsibility is not to save your spouse, number one. No more than we have responsibility to save anybody. 
We, we want to reach them for the gospel, with the gospel. Uh, of course our goal is that they would be saved, but we don't do it. God does that. It is not your, and here's secondly, it is not your responsibility to fulfill your spouse's role. I've seen this multitudes of times where, one, where a Christian is married to an unbeliever, and I guess this is probably usually in the, in the case of a woman. In other words, a Christian woman is married to an unbelieving man, and she tries to be the head of the house, spiritual head of the household. Um, she's trying to fulfill his role. Well, there, there is a sense, obviously, that she's going to be the spiritual leadership of that family because he's not even saved. But, uh, but that will be done by fulfilling her role, if that makes sense, not by trying to do his. It is not your respons- responsibility to fulfill your spouse's role, not whether you're a husband or a wife. There will be a relationship void unless and until they come to Christ in faith. That void's going to be there. You, you can't fill it. And it's not your responsibility to fill it. Your responsibility is to fulfill your God-given role for the glory of God. Seek the good... Here's, here's how you do that. Seek the good of your spouse by being committed in word and deed to glorifying God. This doesn't just mean witnessing and testifying. It means obeying God by fulfilling your part. That means doing what God has instructed you to do in the pages of Scripture. So, in other words, you just live, you just live godly. Live out a godly life. That's, that's our call. For the husband, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So, that's what we're called to do. If your wife is a believer or if she is an unbeliever, love her as Christ loves the church. Love her. Don't be harsh with her. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. If he's a believer or if he's an unbeliever, either way, submit to him as is fitting, as is fitting in the Lord. Notice it's qualified, by the way. So it does, you know, if he's a bank robber and he wants you to hold up a bank with him, you don't do that because you can't do that in a way that's fitting to the Lord, right? So you say, well, I was only submitting to my husband. No, as in the Lord, as is fitting to the Lord. Okay, so and you do that whether he's a believer or an unbeliever. Seek the good of your spouse and children by living godly before them. That's what we're called to do. Husbands, wives, that's what we're called to do. Even if you're married to an unbeliever, seek the God, seek the good rather of your spouse and children by living godly before them. In fact, Peter gives that very instruction to wives uh, in his epistle. Okay. Now, on to today. Our, our, this is just kind of summation of the main point in today's text, verses 20 through 24. I know you're thinking we're never going to get out of chapter 3. Um, we're never going to get past the fall. Uh, I told you it had consequences, all right? So. <laughs> but Lord willing, <clears throat> since we're overcomers in Christ, Lord willing, um, next week we'll be in chapter 4, and it probably, probably... Uh, from this point on, is going to move more rapidly than we have through the first three chapters, because this is this is really, really foundational. These first three chapters. Okay, so the point, our main point for today: our rebellion against God has separated us from God, but there is hope because of the grace of God. 
So let, let me lay some emphasis on that first part again because that's really where we're at in Genesis 3, verses 20 through 24. Our rebellion against God has separated us from God. Our rebellion against God has separated us from God. But now, there's a hint of hope even here in Genesis 3. Now, we know, of course, you read the rest of the Bible and you get the full story and you say, oh, man, there's, there is, thank God, there's hope for sinners because of the grace of God. But it, there's even a hint of it here in Genesis 3. So that's why I'm including that and I'm going to show you how, how that works out. Our rebellion against God has separated us from God, but there is hope because of the grace of God. And there's only one hope, by the way. I'm going to give you the kind of the end of the story right now. There's only one hope, and it's Jesus. There's no other hope. There's no, no other place you can go to be, to be in right relationship with God, the Creator, the true God, the one true living God, to be in right relationship with Him. There's only one place you can go, and that's to Jesus. There's, one, there's a big billboard somewhere out here on the interstate that says, Jesus, your only way to God. Just short and sweet, that is true. He's the only way. That, that's, that's what John 14, 6 says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. All right? So he's our, he's our only hope. Now, let's, let's go back and see why we even need hope here and uh, look at verses 20 through 24. I'm just going to mention a couple of things here and then look at some other passages as time allows. Now, if, if we don't finish today... Um, we may finish this next Sunday. So I said we're going to try to move on to chapter 4. But once we get to chapter 4, it'll start moving more rapidly. I'm pretty confident of that. All right, so verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve. Now I want to point this out for two reasons. One, because it's here. God included it in His Word. And God does everything He does for a reason. And I think one reason that little sentence is there, or part of a sentence is there, is because, again, it illustrates the headship of man. You will find as you read through um, the Scripture that that is a, a, a mark of um, headship or, or sometimes even superiority. But we're not talking here. Remember, male and female, men and women, are created equal in, in terms of personhood, in terms of dignity, um, so, so we're not talking about uh, like men are superior, you know, su- uh, superior beings or something like that. No, no, we're equal in personhood and dignity and worth, but we do have different roles. Man, men as leaders, and that's what I mean by the term headship. I use the term head or headship because it comes from the Bible. But it, the idea there is leader. What, what, is, what is the role of man? To lead, protect right, and provide for. That's all kind of built into the headship. So you will find as you read through the Scripture that naming is is a mark of uh, of that. So, for example, God renames, right? And, of course, in his case, it really does indicate superiority. But God renames people. Abram changes his name to Abraham, right? And... Abraham submits to that because God's in charge. That's you know he's he's the one that calls the, the shots. And Jacob, he changes Jacob's name. Let's see, probably one of these kids 
um, like uh, Ari or Avery or probably somebody can answer that. What does he change Jacob or Luke, Lucas? What's he changed Jacob's name to? Who said that? Yeah, okay, good, very good, very good. Yeah, he changed Jacob's name to Israel. All right, so God does that, you know, and, and Jesus did the same thing. He, he changed Peter's name um, uh, from, from Simon to, uh, to Peter, Rock, Cephas. Um, so that's a mark of headship, all right? So I think that's one reason it's included here. Earlier on, we saw that Adam named all the animals. God pr- brought all the animals before Adam, and Adam named them, and that was part of his dominion over the animal kingdom an expression of his dominion over them. So then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Love that statement, um, especially uh, when, when you're thinking about the, the, uh, the argument today between uh, Darwinianism, Dar- or, you know, like Darwinistic uh, evolution uh, or, or totally materialistic uh, uh, form of evolution um, when you're thinking about that versus what we're, what we're seeing here in the Bible, the scriptural account, God creating everything. Um, I, I love this. Or, or when, when you think about uh, something like racism, you've got, you got people out there who think our, our group of people is better than this other group of people. Well, I hate to break it to you, but we all have the same parents. Eve was the mother of all living. It's awesome, isn't it? Paul says in Acts 17 that we're, we're all made from one man. I think the, the King James there says one blood. We come from one blood. Um, from, from one blood, God made all the nations. So um, I, I was saying a moment ago, when we're thinking of men and women, we shouldn't think in terms of superiority. You know, Well, we shouldn't think that in other cases either, like in, in terms of uh, ethnicity or something like that. She's the mother of all living, and it could all equally be said that, uh, you know, Adam is, is uh, we all trace back to Adam. He's the father of all of us. So we, we, we trace back to the same parents. And the Lord God, verse 21, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So God covers them. Now, here's um, where we're getting into um, God's reaction, part of, this, uh, part of God's reaction to the fall and how he deals with man's rebellion here. Now, earlier, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves, didn't they? You look back in, in uh, verse 7. After eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So all of a sudden, for the first time in their experience, guilt and shame, and they try to cover it. Instead of running to God in repentance and saying, God, what? we don't even fully know what we did, but we messed up. What do we do now? Help! Instead of doing that, they try to cover, 
cover themselves, and then they hide, hide from God. Wrong thing to do. And God comes on the scene, and as we talked about last week, He, he pronounces the, uh, the sentences or the curse, curses and talks about the consequences of their sin. And then you would kind of expect right there what He would do is really just bring the hammer down. And I think what we're seeing here, in fact, confident, what we're seeing here um, is an act of grace. They tried to cover themselves and what they should have done is run to Him for cover. And so now, even though they never did that, now He's doing that. He's clothing them. And I think there's a, a couple of things going on here. Uh, well, it's all tied together, but this is probably, on one hand, this is probably a, a foreshadowing of the sacrificial, the animal sacrificial system that is, that is going to be introduced later. Because we're told, told repeatedly, when you get over into uh, later in the, in the Old Testament and into the law, we're told repeatedly that they are to perform these particular animal sacrifices as a covering for sin. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, it's, it's like uh, the idea is it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't wipe it out. It doesn't resolve it but it temporarily covers it. And so, as a result of that, you know, as, as the people of Israel were living under God's rule and performing the sacrifices and so forth, God's anger was stayed. I think we're seeing that foreshadowed here. Their sin is covered by God, He does what they were really incapable of doing, and He makes provision for their sin. And then, of course, ultimately, how is their sin going to be taken care of? Ultimately, it's in the sacrificial work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ. When Jesus goes to the cross, sacrificing Himself. And so that's foreshadowed here as well. In other words, they, they failed in providing for themselves. They failed in handling their own guilt and shame. And so God graciously sends His own Son into the world to die, to die for us, to pay the penalty in our place so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Because in Christ our sin is dealt with, not just temporarily covered, but permanently dealt with. So we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you um, attempt to be in right relationship with God based on your own efforts, you know, well, I think I can be pretty good. I think I can, I think I can do pretty good. I don't you know, I haven't killed anybody and, uh, you know, don't, I haven't stolen anything in a long time and I, I don't lie all that much and I'm pretty sure if you put, put my stuff on the scales, good versus bad, I've done enough good that the scales are going to tilt in my favor and uh, God will overlook 
the bad. No, He won't. And He's made that crystal clear in Scripture. He won't. It's perfection or nothing. It's perfection or condemnation. It's perfection or eternal hell. And guess what? Nobody's capable of perfection. Well, wait a minute. There was one. (laughs) Jesus, right? And so Jesus, in our place, lives out the perfection that we can't attain. And then in our place, He goes to the cross, suffers, not just physically, but He suffers the full brunt of the wrath of the Father poured out on Him while He's hanging on the cross, taking the penalty for our sin. He who knew no sin. And then He's raised from the dead, conquering sin and death and proving that He has indeed um, paid for our sin and that He has indeed triumphed over, over death. Um, and it's His righteousness, that righteousness that He lived out, that righteousness that belongs to Him, that is put to our account if we are believers. So, figuratively speaking, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So that, I think that's what's at work here. In one sense, verse 21 is foreshadowing the whole sacrificial system which operates as a covering for sins and which, by the way, is itself foreshadowing the work of Christ which would take care of sin. And in another sense, verse 21, on the other hand, is also foreshadowing the work of Christ. When we are clothed with His righteousness. So verse 22. Now, um, I'm going to do this real quick because I want to, I want to, uh, I want to spend more time on it. So, so we'll have to do that, uh, Lord willing, we'll have to do that next week. Because I want to take you to some, um, places in the New Testament and show you how all this plays out. So for now, uh, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. There, there is, that is, there is a new understanding now that man has um, that, that uh, spells out trouble. Now God goes on to say, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Most translations leave that as an unfinished sentence. And you're wondering, okay, what? What? <laughs> what if he does that? What will happen? Well, he doesn't tell us, but, but even by the, by the fact that the sentence is unfinished, it, it, uh, it lets us know that the result would not be good. So now that man is a sinner, man and woman, now that they are sinners... God knows that it is not good for them to live forever in that condition. So, he says, therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. Now, notice, notice that language there. He, first he says, he sent him out from the Garden of Eden, that's, that's the home God created for them. 
I mean, where they had absolutely everything they needed and more. I mean, everything you could dream of. They had it. And now he's driving them out of there to work the ground. Now they got to toil and labor for food where it apparently was just readily available for them in the garden. And then verse 24, he drove out the man. Again, putting emphasis on that. Banished. That is, he is banished from the garden. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. It's just an, an angelic uh, being. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, what he's done is drive the man out, man and woman, mankind, drive the human beings out of his presence. Now, this is the main thing I want us to get today. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. Or you use the term alienated. Because of our sin, we are alienated from God. Sin separates us from God because God is holy. And He cannot tolerate sin. In Romans 5, Paul uses language like this to describe what happened. Sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam. And death through sin. Death spread to all men. Many died through one man's trespass. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By a man came death. In Adam all die. That's Romans 5. That's that's just from a few verses. Romans 5, verses 12 through 22. That's the effect of the fall. Alienated. Sin, through one man, sin came to the world. Death through sin. What is, what is death? Well, ultimately, it is to be separated from God. So through one man, we're separated from God. Well, because in Adam, all die. Because it spread, verse 12 says, Romans 5, 12. It spread, death spread to all men. So even though we're reading here about the rebellion of Adam and the consequences that Adam and Eve faced, the repercussions still go on today. Because it affected not only Adam and Eve, but all, all of their progeny. All die in Adam. And what does that mean? Well, primarily it means we're all separated from God because of sin. That's why David says that the psalmist, uh, the King, da- King David says that he was conceived in sin. He doesn't, he's not saying there, there was something sinful about my conception. No, he's saying, at conception is the idea. At conception, I was a sinner. We're conceived in sin, separated from God. 
Sin separates us from God. Rebellion separates us from God. But there's hope. Remember our sentence? Our rebellion against God has separated us from God, but there is hope because of the grace of God. And that's why we're getting this, these little mentions of God clothed them. Or uh, back in verse 15 when he talks about the, the serpent crusher who will come and bruise the head of the serpent. That's why we're getting these mentions because God, even with the pronouncements of judgment, God is already speaking about coming hope and clothing us. So the bottom line is this. Our sin has separated us from God. And the consequence for that is eternal death, which means eternal separation from God. Or to say it another way, the the consequence for separation from God is eternal damnation to be removed from the presence of God forever. It's like Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, cast out from the presence of God, put out, driven out. We would be driven out as sinners, driven out from His presence forever and ever and ever. So then where's the hope? The hope is in another man. Jesus. Who came to reconcile us to God through His righteousness, through His life, His death, His resurrection, and putting His righteousness to our account. Through the work of Jesus, we are reconciled to God. Through faith in Jesus, that is trusting in Him, believing that He did what He came to do, and trusting in Him for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life, Through trusting in Him, we are reconciled to God. So, every one of us comes into being alienated from God, banished from God, but there is hope, and our hope is Jesus. So the question is, for us today, all of us, am I trusting Jesus? Am I trusting Jesus to be reconciled to God. The question is not whether or not you need to be reconciled. Everybody needs to be reconciled. Not everybody knows they need to be reconciled, but everybody needs to be reconciled. The question is, are you trusting Christ for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Would you stand, please? I ask you to consider those things as we dismiss. And, of course, I would hope uh, that if there's anybody in this room today who doesn't know Jesus as, uh, as Lord and Savior, that, uh, that you wouldn't even leave here, I would hope, without settling that. But even if you do, um, I encourage you to keep thinking on it. Go to God's Word. Seek Him. Read, you know, first-hand experience. Read the Gospels, the book of John, the book of Mark. Meet Jesus and surrender to Him. We're going to dismiss with a word of prayer. Um, Brother Freddie, would you mind...
Lead us in prayer and we'll be dismissed.